So the reading today, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 to 27, found on page 3 of the Bible. So Genesis chapter 1, and we're starting at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was all over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, and it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit and seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, The third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights the greater light to govern the day, and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of sky. So God created the great creatures of the the sea, and every living and moving thing, with which the water teems, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. 
Male and female, he created them. This is the word of the Lord. Now I want to begin by just recapping on five areas that uh, we either explicitly or implicitly flagged up last week in our initial study of Genesis. And we learnt, first of all, that God is the ultimate cause of the universe. We looked at some of the alternatives, biblically and scientifically, and found them to be wanting. The world is not a mirage, it is not a figment of my imagination, as some Eastern religions would have it. Nor has it always been here. In the beginning, which because of the Big Bang um, means lies beyond it, the other side of it, that God cannot be got at by us working backwards. He is distinct from us. He has to reveal himself to us in order for us to know what his plans and purposes are. That's as far as we can go back. Neither has nothing become something, nor a little bit of something by a random process of chance has become the universe we know today. And biblically and scientifically, the most reasonable conclusion is that some intelligence greater than creation kicked it all off and caused the universe to come into being. Paul Davies is a leading astrophysicist. He's not a believer in God, but nonetheless, he argues that the fine-tuning of the universe indicates that there is a great intelligence somewhere. But he holds, nevertheless, that this intelligence must have evolved from primitive matter. He writes, I cannot believe that our existence in this universe is a mere quirk of fate, an accident of history, an incidental blip in the great cosmic drama. Our involvement is too intimate. We are truly meant to be here. One wonders what stops him from uh, giving this driving force of intelligence a personality. Francis Collins, head of the famous Genome Project, writes, The Big Bang cries out for a divine explanation. I cannot see how nature could have created itself. Only a supernatural force that is outside space and time could have done that. And we also notice that God is the ultimate author of Scripture, although, of course, his mind on matters was mediated through prophets in the Old Testament, like Moses, and apostles in the New Testament, like Paul. Nonetheless, he endorsed the Old Testament in all his debates and arguments with his contemporaries. He quotes from, I think, every book of the Bible except about two. And he provided for apostles to write the authorised version of his life and teaching. Secondly, we saw how there are complementary methods of discovering truth. Science works through investigation. Scripture works through the record of God's revealed truth. Many of the things in the Bible, science is not in a position to otherwise discover. Thirdly, they have complementary methods of communicating truth. Science uses precise technical language. The scriptures use popular language, the language of observation, and contain a whole variety of different kinds of literature, poetry, prose, parables, allegory, fable, history, correspondence, prayers, dreams, visions. 
And then a question about provisionality and certainty. Science is always provisional, since its theories can be amended by subsequent discoveries, as we saw they have been. Scripture validated by Christ, God on earth, is settled, but of course our understanding of it is always open to improvement. And then, fifthly, God is behind both creation and science. He saw, we saw how he has, in effect, two books, which we can read. We can read his universe, and we can read his word. Assuming that both are correctly understood, there should be no conflict. Sadly, science, we saw, has sometimes misunderstood creation or gone beyond what science can discover and comment on. But also, sadly, we saw how Christians have sometimes misinterpreted Scripture and gone beyond what Scripture is saying. Science and Scripture, both properly understood, are complementary. One answers how and when, the other who and why. So let's have a look at our passage this morning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, verse 1. The initiative in every action lies with him. This is especially true of creation. Christians believe that when God began his creative work, nothing existed except him. Only he was there in the beginning. Only he is eternal. And the God-centeredness of Genesis 1 stands out prominently. God is the subject of nearly every verb in the chapter. God said occurs ten times. God saw that it was good, or even very good, seven times. Verse 2, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Although Isaiah, writing in the 7th century BC, assures us that, quote, God did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. So the earth was first empty, formless, dark and uninhabitable. So stage by stage in Genesis 1, we watch God reducing disorder to order, chaos to cosmos. The author of Genesis evidently understood that creation was a process. Now what was the means of creation? Well, it would seem that God commands or literally speaks, as in the book of Hebrews 11.3, where it says, the universe was created by God's word. So what can be seen was made out of what cannot be seen. Our words are wonderful things, aren't they? They are the clearest way of communicating what's in your head into somebody else's head. And they can be very powerful. They can and are effective. What God wills or commands we see comes about and the universe is created. And when it was completed, we have a statement of divine satisfaction. And God was pleased with what he saw. In fact, he was very pleased, because human beings had arrived on the scene. 
and it is human beings who were created so that they could enjoy a personal relationship with God the Holy Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That's what he did it for. Now, how are we meant to read these six days of creation? As literal days or as a literary device? God, we know, uses a variety of types of literature in Scripture to communicate with us. So although we might prefer, certainly in my case, prose over poetry or historical narrative over parables, the fact is he clearly wants to communicate through a variety of styles. What we have to do with Genesis 1 is first to work out what kind of literature it is. Is it a literal chronological order, or is it a poetic expression? Now, if we decide that it is meant to be six literal days of 24 hours, notice the seventh day doesn't end, then there are some immediate problems, and here's one. If the sun is created on day four, Genesis 1.16, why do we have lights already appearing in Genesis 1.3? So maybe a better way forward is needed. Genesis 1.1 tells us that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This is not a title or a summary of the narrative that follows. Rather, it's a background statement that describes how the universe came to be. In Genesis 1.1, created is in the perfect tense. And when a perfect verb is used at the beginning of a unit in Hebrew narrative, It usually functions to describe an event that precedes the main storyline. There are other examples in Genesis 3 at least. And Genesis 1.1 is describing the actual act of God creating heaven and earth. The creation of everything, visible and invisible. With Genesis 1.2 following, focusing on the visible. After the act of creation in 1.1, the main point of the narrative for the rest of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 seems to be the making and the preparation of the earth for its inhabitants with a highly patterned structure of forming and filling. So, we have on the left the first three days, on the right the second three days. In the first three days, we have um, what is formless being formed and organised. On the second lot of three days, we have what is emptied being filled. So on day one, we have the separation of light from darkness. On day four, the creation of lights are given to rule the day and the night. On day two, we have the separation of the waters to form the sky and the sea. On day five, we have the creation of birds and fish to fill the sky and the sea. On day three, we have the separation of the sea from dry land and the creation of plants. On day six, we have the creation of animals and humans to fill the land and to eat the plants. Now, Genesis 1.1 as God creates the heavens and the earth. And heavens, Joel, when Joel uses it in his chapter 3, heavens encompass the sun, the moon and the stars. And then we have in Genesis 1-2, we're told that this earth that was created 
was without form and void, and that darkness covers the waters and the Spirit is hovering above it. It helps us to remember that in Hebrew there are distinct words for to create and to make. And when the Hebrew construction, let there be, is used in the phrase, for example, in the Psalms, let your steadfast love be upon us, this obviously isn't a request for God's love to begin to exist, but rather to function in a certain way. And similarly, if the sun, the moon and the stars and lights were created in Genesis 1.1, then they were made or appointed for a particular function in Genesis 1.14-19. And there is, throughout this chapter, a strong indication that the main purpose of it is theological. It's to teach us about God, theos, more than any scientific explanation. So, for example, the sun and the moon are simply called lights here, Genesis 1.16, rather than their respective Hebrew names for sun and moon. Now, why is that? Well, the most probable reason is that among the neighbouring Semitic people, sun and moon were the names of their gods. And Genesis 1 may well be attacking this idea. The sun and the moon are not gods. They are just created lights in the sky, created by the one true God. Well, why is it that the Hebrew word bara, which means create, is used in connection with sea monsters when it is otherwise only used as a creation of the universe, in verse 1, and the creation of human beings, verse 27? And why then only of the sea monsters and not any other creatures? Well, again, it's most likely theological and scientific. In the ancient Near Eastern alternative accounts of creation, God has to subdue the sea monsters in order to create. In Genesis 1, he is criticising this view, asserting that everything was created by him. Nothing that has been made was made any other way than by him. We aren't dualists. We don't think there's an eternal, say, force of evil, for example. So, this first chapter speaks of the order, harmony and beauty of God's creation. It's theological rather than scientific. And this is something that was understood by the very earliest Christians. The writer Origen, writing around 225 AD, is quite blunt. He says, What man of intelligence, I ask, will consider as a reasonable statement that the first and second and the third day, in which there are said to be both morning and evening, existed without sun and moon and stars, while the first day was even without a heaven? What origin of Alexandria knew, as did others, Augustine's even more forceful, was that 24-hour days with evenings and mornings were meaningless before the sun and other stars are created on day four. John Stott on this point writes, We do not have to choose between Genesis 1 and contemporary cosmology or astrophysics. The Bible was never intended by God to be a scientific textbook. 
Indeed, it should be evident to readers that Genesis 1 is a highly stylized and beautiful poem. Both accounts of creation, scientific and poetic, are true, he says, but given from different perspectives and complementary to one another. So I hope you uh, see that if we understand the literary form correctly, then we can do justice to the inspiration, accuracy and authority of the Bible. And then we can turn to see how that might square or synthesise with what we know of the Bible, with what we know of science. Francis Collins, who I've uh, quoted already, is one of the world's leading geneticists, a long-time leader of that famous genome project which was completed a few years ago. Collins grew up as an agnostic. Then he became a committed atheist while getting his PhD in chemistry. It wasn't until he attended medical school and witnessed the true power of religious faith among his patients that his worldview began to change. And he now describes himself, like us, as an evangelical Christian. In his book, The Language of God, which is surprisingly easy to read for somebody like me who possesses zilch in terms of uh, scientific qualifications, he outlined four different ways in which uh, scripture and science have interacted over this matter of creation and evolution. Option one, atheism and agnosticism, when science trumps faith. Option two, creationism. He's using that in a very narrow sense of being um, that the universe was created about 10,000 years ago. Although, of course, all Christians are creationists. Um, And in fact, yeah. And thirdly, um, uh, intelligent design, when science needs a bit of divine help along the way, from Big Bang to the arrival of human beings. And fourthly, biologos, where science and faith are in harmony they are really an updating of of four similar, older options. So, mechanistic evolution basically leaves God out. In fact, he's not thought to exist. Young Earth creationism is where everything is thought to have been created 10,000 years ago. Progressive creationism is where God kicks it all off. Human beings are the climax of that creation but God has to intervene a few times to move things on to the next stage and to keep things on track. And theistic evolution is where God kicks it all off and he oversees the project proceeding, making sure that it proceeds on track without further direct divine intervention. Now, what do we make of these options? Well, you'll... um, Right, so... Mechanistic evolution without directive intelligence is rather hard to believe. I've already quoted Paul Davis, you know, who isn't a believer, but who cannot think that it, it requires a greater intelligence to make sure that it's happened. But Professor John Polkinghorne is a physicist and a Christian, a former president of Queen's College, Cambridge, and he makes the point powerfully like this. In the early expansion of the universe, there has to be, a close, uh, to be a close balance between the expansive energy driving things apart. You know, and in an explosion, things all kind of spray out. 
and the force of gravity pulling things together. If the expansion dominated, then matter would just fly apart too rapidly for any condensation into galaxies and stars to take place. Nothing interesting could happen in so thinly spread a world. On the other hand, if gravity dominated, the world would collapse in on itself again before there was time for the processes of life to get going. For us to be possible, he says, requires a balance between the effects of expansion and contraction, which at a very early epoch in the universe's history has to differ from equality by not more than 1 in 10 to the power of 60. The numerate, he says, will marvel at such a degree of accuracy. Fortunately, for the non-numerate, he points out that it is the same as aiming at a target an inch wide on the other side of the observable universe, 20,000 million light-years away, and hitting the mark. In other words, he says, very understatedly, this is a very special universe. The universe in a trillion, you might say which is capable of having had the amazingly fruitful history that has turned a ball of energy into a world containing you and me. Then there's uh, young earth creationism, which is particularly popular in some parts of America. But I think this is a serious mistake. And I can see how it started off. It started off um, probably about 500 years ago thinking that the genealogies in scripture could be used to work out a date for creation. And the date usually given is 4004 BC. In fact, one vice-chancellor of Cambridge University, in all sincerity, he was a Hebraist, he worked it out as being the 23rd of October 2004 at 9am in the morning, 23rd meridian time. And then there's the comment, more precise than this, the cautious scholar, the cautious vice-chancellor wouldn't venture to go further. But what he'd missed, and you know, people can miss these things, they were sincere Christians, but he didn't realise that the genealogies are not complete. You can see that just by comparing one to another. Sometimes they miss out a couple of names. They've got a different purpose in kind of writing these things down. So they're not complete, so you can't work it out. But actually it assumes they're individuals when they could actually be family dynasties. For example, you all know Elizabeth Windsor, don't you? She's the queen. She's not just one... uh, She's just one Windsor who has sat on the throne in the last hundred years. There have been other members of the Windsor family who have been monarchs. Now also, Kenneth Kitchen, who is a member, who was a member of the Christian Brethren, but also doubled up as a professor of Egyptology... Uh, So, you know, he has very um, sound biblical convictions. He's done a great deal of good work. He points out that the ancient Near Eastern genealogies, that you get the, the equivalent of, you know, a dynasty like the Windsors, but sometimes you get an individual. It's very difficult to tell when one is one and one is the other. So biblically it doesn't work, and scientifically it is, of course, a non-starter. So we're left with two 
viewpoints which Christians hold um, today. And the first is progressive creation, or sometimes it's a version of intelligent design. They're not exactly the same, but they're very close. And both, uh, it's important to take them seriously. They point out that certain things are assumed by the theory of evolution, things which are yet to have been worked out with any certainty. And they think that God may have had to intervene in the normal continuity of creation. Such places might be the origin of life, and they may be later our arrival, Homo sapiens, who acquired the image of God. But we always have to remember with that, it's called the God of the gaps, that if we don't know how it's happened, and we say, God did it. When somebody does discover how it happened, what happens to the God who previously filled the gap? However, people like John Lennox, who's um, famous he's, uh, for his debates with uh, Richard Dawkins, both of them were uh, emeritus professors at Oxford, one in mathematics and one in biology. He thinks that there may well be two possible divine interventions subsequent to the initial bang. He thinks they may have occurred. He would argue that just as God created the bang, just as God came in the form of Jesus in the incarnation, the resurrection, the ascension, that just as those are what he calls singularities, they are um, ways of intervening in the world, not part of the normal process. Just as he did that, he could have done that then. Well, that's a possibility. Presumably science will eventually confirm one way or the other. And then there's theistic evolution, which is the prevailing view among Christians in science, certainly in this country, and certainly amongst evangelical uh, who happen to hold various chairs of uh, science in the country. They accept that there are some gaps in the scientific understanding of the changes that have taken place since the Big Bang, but that the trajectory is sound. How precisely life began, or if you want to popularise it, how rocks can become reptiles, is a work in progress. How hominids like Neanderthals acquired a God consciousness and started praying may, of course, just be down to the fact that you end, over time, you end up with hominids with a larger brain and a more complex brain. And the whole dimension to ask questions and to be able to use language makes you start thinking, well, who's created all this? And they have the capacity to engage with the divine through prayer. So a typical version of theistic evolution rests upon six premises. One... The universe came into being out of nothing approximately 14 billion years ago. Despite massive improbabilities, the properties of the universe appeared to have been precisely tuned for life. Third, while the precise mechanism of the origin of life on Earth remains unknown, once life arose, the process of evolution and natural selection 
permitted the development of biological diversity and complexity over a very long period of time. Fourthly, once evolution got underway, no special supernatural intervention was required. And that's where the two views, progressive creationism and theistic evolution, vary. Fifthly, humans are part of this process, sharing a common ancestor with the other primates. But humans are also unique in ways that defy evolutionary explanation and point to our spiritual nature. And this includes the existence of the moral law, the knowledge of right and wrong, and the search for God that characterises all human cultures throughout history. Well, Colin says, if one accepts these six premises, then an entirely plausible, intellectually satisfying and logically consistent synthesis emerges. God, who is not limited in space and time, created the universe and established natural laws that govern it, seeking to populate this otherwise sterile universe with living creatures. God chose the elegant mechanism of evolution to create microbes, plants and animals of all sorts. Most remarkably, God intentionally chose the same mechanism to give rise to special creatures who would have intelligence and a knowledge of right and wrong, free will and a desire to seek fellowship with him. And he also knew these creatures would ultimately choose to disobey him. Now this view, he says, is entirely compatible with everything that science teaches us about the natural world. It is also entirely compatible with the great monotheistic religions of the world. But this synthesis has provided for legions of scientists, scientist believers, he calls them, it's hyphenated, a satisfying, consistent and enriching perspective that allows both scientific and spiritual worldviews to coexist happily within us. This perspective makes it possible for the scientist believer to be intellectually fulfilled and spiritually alive, both worshipping God and using the tools of science to uncover some of the awesome mysteries of his creation. So we end. Jim Packer, in his book, I Want to Be a Christian, writes, The message of these two chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, is this. You have seen the sea, the sky, sun, moon, stars. You watched the birds and fish. You've observed the landscape, the vegetation, the animals, the insects, all the big things and all the little things together. You've marvelled at the wonderful complexity of human beings with all their powers and skills and deep feelings of fascination, attraction and affection that men and women arouse in each other. Fantastic, isn't it? Well, now meet the one who is behind it all. As if to say, now that you've enjoyed these great works of art, you must shake hands with the artist. Since you are thrilled by the music, we will introduce you to the composer. 
It was to show us the creator rather than the creation and to teach us knowledge of God rather than physical science that Genesis 1 and 2, along with such celebrations of creation in Psalm 104 and in Job 38 to 41. They were written so we might worship our creator and be good stewards of his creation which he has entrusted to us. Let us pray. It would seem fitting to use part of uh, the general thanksgiving prayer. Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, your unworthy servants, do give you most humble and hearty thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all men. We bless you for our creation, preservation and all the blessings of this life, but above all for your inestimable love in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. Amen.